when I was in graduate school, I had a professor, Dr. Stanley Toussaint, a brilliant expositor of the Bible, and he told a story about how you read a passage where there are a lot of complicated names that might be hard to pronounce. And for example, in, if you were reading Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, now these are the records of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons that were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and hard name and hard name <laughs> and, and Tubal and hard name and hard name and on it goes. Ezra 2 is not a genealogy, but it is a list of a lot of hard names for our English tongue to pronounce. If you have a Bible open to Ezra chapter 2, you'll pass the first and second book of Samuel, Kings, and first and second Chronicles. You'll find Ezra tucked right after the end of second Chronicles. If you go to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, you've gone a little too far, right after second Chronicles. Or if you're cheating with an electronic device, just point to that Ezra chapter 2, and voila, you will be there. Now, during the exile, 70 years of Jews being in captive in uh, Babylon, during the exile, uh, these individuals would become very dependent upon not only their lineage, their legacy, but their land. The two key promises for God in his word to his people were the chosen people and their land. That he'd made promises to them about this land they were going to possess. And of course, Israel falters in the process of securing the land, but those two promises were ensconced in their minds. They believed it, they knew it. And if you've been in captivity 70 years and you were now going to be free to go home, it's going to be important that you know your lineage and your land. In 70 years, many people would have died in captivity. Many people would have been born in captivity. We could guesstimate that anyone that went in in their 40s or 50s certainly died during captivity. Anyone that was a child was aged if they were still surviving, and there would have been people born. So all the more important that we had records of who these people were related to as they go to repopulate, not just the land, but think of it as a title or a deed, and you've been gone a long time, and they want to come back to what was your home, so to speak. Listen to what Derek Kidner writes about this chapter. I think it is very helpful. This chapter, however uninviting it may seem, is a monument to God's care and Israel's vitality. The thousands of homecomers are not lumped together, but in characteristic biblical fashion are related to local and family circles, which humanize a society and orientate an individual. These are people. It's a group. It's a society. But there's individuals comprising this group. He continues, And for the people's part, their tenacious memory of places and relationships still strong after two generations in exile showed a fine refusal to be robbed of their past or their present. These were living portions of Israel, roots and all, for replanting. But the fundamental motive for this careful grouping was not social, but religious. This is a holy nation given a new chance to live up to its calling. He continues, there can be nothing casual in its preparations. Not only must every priest have his credentials, but every member too, whether a true-born Israelite or belonging to a constituent household or guild, or again, later, even as a convert. 
Now, Lloyd mentioned last week a very important sentence. History is God working to fulfill his word. History is God at work fulfilling his word. And if you think of the, the Bible and then world history, uh, Scripture is what we call salvation history, or the, the theology professors call it salvific history. How has God entered through time and brought salvation to man? We are self-important and we are inflated, and so we look at human history, Western civilization, Egyptian civilization. We look at this over a timeline that humans have put together by lineages, by names, and by documents. But biblical history is God's revealed word about how he is at work, we might say, in spite of, in the middle of, on behalf of a world history we see unfolding. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I live in a historical context, but we forget sometimes there's a biblical historical context that can't be trumped. God's sovereign plan is being executed even though we are fallen creatures and a fallen, broken world, and we need to be reminded of that. Now, let's keep some things in mind as we look at Ezra today. Number one, Ezra is a post-exilic book. We talk about exile being that 70-year captivity in Babylon. So we have pre-exilic prophets and post-exilic prophets, those who wrote before and after the exile. This is a big mark in their life, just like the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This is another chapter where they're in captivity, and it's important to them. There are three returns, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They're 70 years in captivity, but this process will take 100 years for Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah to bring about the, we might call it repatriation, would be a fair word to use, of getting back to Jerusalem, the center of worship. Ezra and Nehemiah intermingle in their timelines and stories, and we'll try to show you some of that as we go through the book of Ezra. Now, Judah had been in captivity because of disobedience. God punished them. God disciplined them. And that was why they were hauled out of their own city. That's why all the uh, uh, accoutrements that went along with the worship system, from the, the shovels to the lavers to the priest uh, where all that was taken to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's time frame. And that was possessed by Nebuchadnezzar. It was God's punishment, but it was not permanent. Because the holy, sovereign creator and sustainer loves his people. He will discipline them, but it won't be a permanent punishment. Thirdly, under God's sovereign orchestration, the Medes and Persians become allies and they defeat Babylon. So Israel isn't even a player. They're just in captivity. And God aligns these two people groups to go after Babylon. And in a weak point in Babylon's history, they're able to overturn Babylon in uh, 539 B.C. That gives the window for Cyrus, who becomes the king that Lloyd introduced last weekend. And Cyrus, because he's a nice guy, <laughs> because God used him, is going to free Israel to go back to their homeland and even give them what they have left remaining, because they don't have it all, what they have left to reconstitute temple worship. The goal was not merely going home. The goal was to reestablish worship because they could not worship in captivity. We don't have any comprehension of being unable to worship because as New Testament in Christ believers, we look at worship very differently. For the pious, God-fearing Jew, the temple of God had to be in place. That was the name where he was going to put his name. That was the only place you could worship him. And they, were, they longed, they ached, they hurt 
in captivity that they couldn't worship Yahweh Elohim the way God intended. So this is a huge thing to them to be able to go back and reestablish the worship system. Now, how do you tackle a chapter like Ezra chapter 2? Let's admit it. When you come to a genealogy or a list of names, what do we do? We skim over it. We, we all do. Now, we might find one or two words, unless you're in precept or BSF or some group that really is, you know, super hyper-spiritual. <laughs> then we're going to study the words. That's what I'm paid to do. So we study the words. But uh, we're going to, uh, I'll skip it. I'll read it later, we say. I'll study it later. We never do. Um, so when you come to a passage like this, what do you do with it? I'm going to give you nine categories, and they're probably in your Bible. Uh, just an easy way to talk through the chapter and then make some observations and what do we learn from this list. The first is chapter 2. I want to read verse 1. And what we have here are the leaders. Verses 1 and 2 is the first of nine breakouts of this list. And these are the leaders. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his city. And then he names them Zerubbabel, probably being the governor of the list. So verses 1 and 2 are the leaders that lead the list, the way Ezra the priest is recording it. Now, this journey is going to take approximately four four months. We're going to see uh, toward the end of this that there are almost 50,000 people in this movement. It's going to take four months, and it's going to be 900 miles approximately. That's going to be a long journey, an arduous journey, but they're getting out of captivity and they finally get to go home. Some of these people, this would not be home. They would have been very young. So they're taking this very arduous journey and the leaders head the list. Then we have a list, secondly, of families and cities. Families and cities. And this goes from verse 3 all the way down to verse 35. If you're reading a new American Standard Bible, the list begins at verse 2, the second strophe, the number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh. And then the word sons is used all the way down until verse 21. The word sons here is the word ben, like Benjamin, the son of Yamin. Uh, the son of my right hand, the son of my strength, these type of words. Uh, The woman's name was Bet, Bet-sheba, the daughter of. So those were two prefixes, and they were very common in the Old Testament uh, in in, in Jewish lore to use that name, the son of someone. Uh, We have uh, junior and and the third and the fourth and so forth and so on. That's the same concept as you're keeping that identity. Now, Ezra is written in Aramaic, portions of it. And Aramaic and Hebrew collide. And so some of the reasons the spellings are different when you go down this list and you look in your margin and go, oh, it could also be so-and-so, is because we have an Aramaic translation of a Hebrew name. So that's why you see so many variations in the book of Ezra, because it is written in part in Aramaic. Then you'll see the change, the men, in verse 21. This is the stem word, ish. In Genesis, we have ish, the man, and ish, ah, the woman, because she's taken out of man. This is Anaish. And now we have this, rather than sons of, we have men. Why? No one knows for sure. My speculative guess is we, had, we knew lineages when it's called a son, but we don't know lineages, but we do know cities. Well, we don't know the precise who his father's father's father was, but we know they're from Bethlehem. And so we have this division, and I think there's a hierarchy the way this thing is is written, and it culminates as well. We start out with the leaders in verse 1 and 2. Then we have the the Israelite proper, the sons of, and then we go to the cities because this is how the lineage continues in this area. Uh, Then in verse 
26 to 36 to 39, we have the, the third grouping, and these are the priests. Uh, if you've heard the word Cohen, some of you might have a last name, Cohen. That means a priest, very common word in modern Hebrew. And so these are the priests of Jedediah, and then they're listed. Of the priest, and they are all, all priests come out of the Levitical tribe. Aaron and then Levi, the tribe of Levi. So here's this large body of people called the Levites. All priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. Make sense? Large body of Levites, that's where you get your priests from. They have to be in the Levitical order. You can't just make someone from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or Dan. You can't make them a priest. They've got to be in the lineage of Levi from Aaron to the Levitical priest. So not all Levites are priests, but all priests are from the Levitical tribe. Listen to the way Mervyn Brenneman explains this. The laymen are listed first, then the temple ministers, who's going to take care of this complex. The priest constituted about 10% of the returnees. In David's time, in Chronicles 24, he had 24 groups of Levitical priests. We only have four coming home. So we have a shell, a fragment, a proper term, a remnant of what they once were. And it will take many generations until the New Testament before all 24 of those groups are reinstated and put in play again. And it has to do with the lineage and being able to identify, are they from the line of Levi? As a side, if you go to Israel, uh, sometimes we go to the Jerusalem Institute. It's one of many that's trying to rebuild the temple implements so they can one day offer sacrifice again. But uh, one of the largest investors and most, most interest in the genome project are the Jews. Because we have to know the lineage of these individuals if we're ever going to put a high, if they're ever going to put a high priest back in position. And they're even using gene therapy and gene science to go after a red heifer. Uh, they take it very seriously. Uh, they didn't have that technology in those days, but their record keeping was very serious that you could only be a priest from the tribe of Levi. And those priests had very uh, high protocol, very high lineage uh, that was required for them to serve. Then in verses 42, 40 to 42, we had the Levites mentioned and then uh, the temple servants follow that in verses 43 and following. And then we have the sons of Solomon's servants in verses 55 to 58. My speculation here is the reason they're listed, not only because they were part of that group, but you remember David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God told him, no, you're a man of war, a man of blood. You can build your own home. So when you go to Israel, we'll show you where David's house was. So what does David do since he can't build the Lord a house, he spends the next few years getting all the materials together for his son to build the Lord's house. So he's got all the gold and timbers and everything that's going to be required to build the house of the Lord. And Solomon then will build that. So if we're going to go back and rebuild the temple complex from its ruined state, who better than those in the line of Solomon and who were Solomon's servants' descendants? to know? Because that, that information was handed down to those people. So my speculation is why they're included in the list and why the remnant of them survived, because it was Solomon who built the temple complex, and that would be part of their legacy. Then we have two interesting sections that are questionable. Uh, the questionable birth of, uh, in verse um, 59. Now those who came up, from Tel Melah and Tel Harish, the cherub, Adan and Emir, 
but were not able to give evidence of their father's household. That's the key phrase in verses 59 and 60. They can't prove their pedigree. They can't prove their lineage. It continues to a group of priests in verse 61. That would be the eighth group, the seventh group being the questionable lineage uh, of their birthplace, and now the questionable priesthood, verse 61. Of the sons of the priests... And then it lists them, who took a wife from the daughters of Bar- uh, Barzilia. By the way, if you're a precept BSFer, that Barzilia is an incredible study for you to check, that, check out and do on your own. It's quite interesting why he's included in this list and why he took that name. Uh, verse 62, these searched among the ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. This is precision. We've got to know, are they rightly related? Are they part of this lineage before they just, oh, well, you can be a priest in the new temple complex. No, we've got to prove your registration. We've got to prove your pedigree. And it goes on and said, the governor, verse 63, probably Zerubbabel said to them, they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. Uh, So we get a little glimpse on this, what's going on here. We're going to reinstate worship that's been in disarray for a long time, not just 70 years, but it was collapsing before then. So to go back and rebuild the complex physically is one piece, architecturally is one piece, but to rebuild it spiritually and technically according to the Levitical law is a whole nother ballgame. So if you have someone that's in the lineage of Levite and they're supposedly a priest, but we can't prove it by their lineage, uh, there would be a high priest that would come along. You might remember the high priest wore an ephod and a breastplate. And the breastplate had the 12 stones of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. It was a pocket as well. Inside that pocket were the Urim and Thummim. One attempt to pronounce it. There's many uh, differences of opinion, opinion. But the Urim and the Thummim were inside it. There were two devices. Think of it like a pair of dice. They yielded a yes-no answer. They're only mentioned a few times in Scripture. They're very intriguing to us, but this was how they determined God's will in a yes-no fashion. Think of it perhaps in this scenario where a king is contemplating going to war, and he calls the high priest and says, petition on my behalf, ask the Lord, shall we go up and and fight so-and-so? And then they would use the Urim and Thummim to determine yes or no. That's one way they would have been used. We're not told a lot about them. There's a lot of lore about them. But what the point here is, Zerubbabel has enough knowledge of the Levitical law to say, you cannot be a priest unless we know your pedigree. Since we don't have the documentation, you can't prove your birth lineage, we're going to wait for a high priest to come along. When he has the way to determine God's will in a yes-no fashion, we can determine, are you part of that priesthood or not? Now, what I find captivating about these two records of questionable birth and questionable priesthood is why does God include sort of the bad news in this list? You're coming from captivity, going back to worship. Why would the scripture record this? Why wouldn't it just leave it out? Unlike any religious book on the planet, God includes warts and all. He includes our sin He includes our failures. It's all part of the story. Revisionists go in and revise history and make it sound the way they want it to sound. Why why are all these textbook debates so hot in public school systems? The revisionists, they don't include certain key uh, characters or features. They don't even talk about the U.S. winning World War II, for example. We don't use that language. These are revisionists. I often joke revisionists are the only ones who pretend to know the truth. We disregard 2,000 years of history, but we, by golly, we can study it today and say they were wrong and we're right. That's a revisionist. Scripture 
There's no revisionism in Scripture. It records everything. The God, holy, sovereign, God, creator, and sustainer of all is not afraid of us seeing the failure of his chosen people. And he even records it in this lineage of of questionable birth order and questionable priests because why? He cares about people. He's not capricious or malevolent, as we'll see in a moment. So the Levites, the temple servants, Solomon's servants, those of questionable birth, those of questionable priesthood, and then last we have the total number. And we have to put a couple things together to get that number. Verse 64, the whole assembly numbered 42,360 besides their male and female servants, 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women. So you put those three numbers together, and that's your total, 49,897. Almost 50,000 people have been in captivity, and now we're going to go 900 miles over approximately 400 months to go back to Jerusalem, to Judah, and to reestablish the worship center. Let me ask and answer perhaps four thoughts about Ezra chapter 2. First of all, do you understand you have a God that knows you by name? The the most obvious takeaway from any genealogy or list is these people were important to him and he knew them by name. He saw saw fit that Ezra records their name in perpetuity in Scripture. We have lots of books that are recorded. We don't have them all in possession. We have the book of life that we read about in the, in the future events where your name's recorded or not recorded in the book of life. God knows you personally by name, and he cares about you. 7.2 billion people on our globe. It's a mind-boggling number. 7.2 billion people, and he knows you and me intimately and by name. John Martin writes, Though such a list of names and locations may seem unnecessary to some modern readers, it would have been a great encouragement to the original readers as they saw their own families and towns represented. Um, Some of you bought a high school uh, yearbook or a college yearbook. Admit it. What's the first thing you did when you got your high school or college yearbook? What's the first thing you did? Find your own picture. And then you look to see where else you were featured in the yearbook. And, and you were upset because like some page you were highly involved with and you weren't even mentioned on that page. You're very upset about it. Then after you find yourself, then what do you do? You look for your closest friends and you find where they are and you circle there. And then you have your friends sign the yearbook. At least that's what we did in our day. When I was in academics, you have a registrar's list of the graduating class of And there are teams that scrub that list. The registrar scrubs it. The deans scrub it. We have people read it. We have people over and over check it for spelling errors. And then, of course, some poor soul has to pronounce all those names at graduation. But what's the most horrible thing to happen on graduation day? You forget someone's name. It's not printed in the program. Oh, it's the worst day of their life. There might be 1,500 names in there. But if yours isn't there or spelled correctly, it's, oh, it's just horrors. I mean, it's terrible illustrative of how self-important we are, but it's also illustrative we like to be known. Dale Carnegie wasn't the first one that said the sweetest word a person hears is their own name. God knows you by name. He knows all about you. 
even if you and I are one of 7.2 billion people living on the planet this very second. How does he do that? Well, he's the sovereign. And a list like this should remind us we have a God who knows us by name. Secondly, while he disciplines his children, he does not forget us. While he disciplines us, he doesn't forget us. Israel's going to spend 70 years in captivity, 400 plus years in the wilderness wanderings, 400 plus years in, in slavery in Egypt, not to mention the wilderness wanderings, in captivity now, pre and post exile. But he doesn't forget. Now, when we read the word the Lord remembered or the Lord didn't forget, it's not like God had a, you know, a senior moment. When Scripture says God remembers, it is that he calls to mind his covenant promises to his covenant people cannot be changed. And when he's reminded in the human experience of this, the way we articulate it, he's reminded of his covenant, as Lloyd pointed out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that David will be on the throne in perpetuity. A descendant of the seed of David will be in perpetuity on that throne. God is calling to mind his promises. Oh, I forgot I made that promise. No. He never forgot it, but the way we explain it humanly is when you're in being disciplined, you don't think God remembers you. God fully remembers you, but you're being disciplined for a period of time while he disciplines his children. God loves his covenant people. He loves his covenant promises. He's loyal to them. I talk about this often. God's loving kindness is loyal to two things, his covenant promises and his covenant people. What he said in his word and the people he chose, he will not change on those two things. Will he discipline us? Yes. 1 Peter 1, 6, And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to the result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you and I go through trials and disappointments and maybe even discipline because of our sin, it's not just we're in the doghouse for a period of time. And so we learn and we endure and we come out hopefully a better person who what? Wants to worship. Think, think of God's discipline in your life and mine. And he's far more merciful than he is heavy-handed. If not, we would have all been dead by age of two. He would have pounded us flat as a, a terrible two, right? Certainly by teens, we'd all been annihilated. Because it's what goes through our temples and in the cavity of our chest that is more concerning to him than just our obvious acting out sin, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. He abhors those things. If God was just and every time we sinned, there was a disciplined consequence, we'd have been killed a long time ago. So he's lavishly merciful. And when you combine that, that he knows you and me by name and he cares about you and loves you immensely, more than we can describe, and he's going to discipline us. Turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 12 for just a second. Hebrews 12 verse 11, almost to the end of your New Testament. Hebrews 12 verse 11. Some of you have committed this verse to memory. If not, it's a good one for you to memorize. Hebrews 12, verse 11. I love the sound of real pages turning in real Bibles. Just <laughs> makes me warm all over. <laughs> Hebrews 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, 
What an understatement. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, worthy of an entire message on its own. Discipline is sorrowful, but we're being trained by this discipline. When you go through it, it's not just punishment for punishment's sake. That's a wrong view of God's discipline. God is teaching us about our sin, teaching us about his character, teaching us about his forgiveness toward us. God disciplines his people, but when we're restored, when we're forgiven, we what? We respond by worship. Here's, here's the line. Show me a person who is locked in sin or living in sin or entrenched in sin, I will show you a person that has no interest in worship. Corollary. No interest in community. No interest in reading the Bible. No interest in prayer. No interest in hanging out with those Christian weirdos, which we all are. Amen? Why would I want to run with those people, for goodness sakes? I want to be the cool people of the world. Show me a person who's living on the edge in that bandwidth. I will show you a person who is either being disciplined or obdurate or apathetic towards God discipline, and they have no interest in spiritual things. It's corollary. It is in my life, when I'm out of fellowship, I'm sure it is in yours as well. Because we are out of fellowship with Christ, we have no interest in the things of God. But when they convict us, and we feel guilty in a proper way, not shame, but we feel guilty about it, when we repent, when we confess, there's freedom. And like, wow, now I can re-engage that relationship that I had lost because of my choice of sin. Number one, you have a God who knows you by name. Number two, he disciplines his children, but he doesn't forget them. Thirdly, if we are his people, we are to be his worshipers. Again, Mervyn Brenneman writes, this service, excuse me, this serves as a prelude to a great event of building the temple and reestablishing worship as prescribed by the law of Moses. If we are his people, we are to be his worshipers, is the point. He wants worshipers. As a person that doesn't know Christ or doesn't know God, that sounds very strange that we have a God that wants worshipers. Sounds kind of self-promoting, right? But here's the reality of it. We're going to worship ourselves or someone else. He wants worshipers. He came to his own, John 1.11, the Jew, and his own knew him not. The entire Old Testament, which is a lot more of our Bible than the New, is God's revealing himself to his own chosen people to whom he made covenant promises, and they are a stiff-necked, rebellious lot, as are we the Gentiles. We might say we are more stiff-necked than the Jew was. The Jew is illustrative to things. We are far worse than that. And he chose his people for reasons known only to him. But he wants worshipers. He wants worshipers in spirit and truth. Now, the Jew was in captivity in Babylon. We are in captivity in sin. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they were enslaved because of their sin. And to get them out of Egypt, they had to be redeemed from slavery and then consecrated to be able to worship. That's the theme of the book of Exodus. Redemption from slavery, consecration from worship. It's the same here. They have been in captivity because of their sin. God didn't just let the Babylonians override them for fun. They had gone so far off the reservation spiritually that he brings an enemy people to discipline them. That weren't bad enough. We're going to take them into captivity. Now God's mercy comes back and he frees them to go back. Why? To reestablish, just to get out of jail? No, to reestablish worship. 
Because the Israelite differed from you and me. They longed to worship God. We have it so easy in our Christianity sometimes, methinks we really don't look that highly upon worship. Not just corporate worship, but our life is worship. Time in the morning in the Word is worship. Time worshiping Him when life stinks and the job's horrible and injustices have abounded on us, when we're sick, when we're disappointed, when our marriage is falling apart. That's the most important time to worship. But I don't feel like worshiping. God wants us to worship. Worship isn't motivated by our emotional bank. Worship is a choice. Worship is ethical. Worship is a response to a holy God who loves and knows you by name, who forgives you, who disciplines you. Yes, but he invites you into something that is so far better than what this world has to offer. But we don't believe that. We've concocted our own system of worship. The worldview is all about me. I, I guess I'm just getting old and a bit addled. I have never seen in my experience the focus on self and narcissism as I've seen it in our current population. It's all about me. We used to use the illustration. Some of you are old enough to remember Life Magazine. Life Magazine, then we had People Magazine. Then we had Us Magazine, which I don't even know if it's still around. And then we have Self Magazine, which I believe is still being published. Now think about that progression from life let's go to the moon let's see uh, inside a uterus with a feet i'm mean, all the stuff life magazine used to do in those days now it's self i've often said they could save a lot of money by instead of doing a, a photo for each cover they could just put a mylar piece that was reflective on self magazine <laughs> and just put the month and volume at top and they save a lot of money a, a magazine about yourself give me a break if you if you have it hide it when i come see your house okay <laughs> What does that tell us of our culture? How often do we hear friends say, I can never believe a God who, fill in the blank. What have they just acknowledged? I've made a God in my image and I would worship a God who I created. It's insanity. You and I live in a world, a Western concept, American concept is all about me. Exact opposite of what it means to know Christ to serve a king, that you worship your creator. You worship the one who forgives you. You worship the one who chose you. Your life is to be a thank you back to him for what he's done for you eternally. This life is a vapor. It's fog on a mirror. It's condensation on your windshield when the weather changes. It's gone, and the rest of eternity is with him. This life, at best, is a clean bus station, and we're working so hard to make this life heaven. That much energy spent on that which is going to go. He wants worshipers. I got to believe those old enough in captivity in Babylon could not wait to get back and smell that first burnt offering that was put on the altar when the thing was set back in place. And hear the word exposited and we'll see how they wept. Lastly, fourth, number one, you have a God who knows you by name. Number two, while he disciplines his children, it's temporary. He doesn't forget them. Three, if we're his people, we're supposed to be his worshipers. And four is a question, what are you willing to do to worship? Or to say another way, worship is expensive. Worship is costly. Look at the last two verses of chapter two. 
verse 68. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of, the Lord, of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work, 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 silver minas, 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites and some of the people and singers and the gatekeepers and temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. And we have the differentiation. We started a list with the leaders who are going to take this group out, this 900-mile journey, four months approximately, to get home. And at the end of this chapter, we're reminded on the bookend, the leaders are initiating with very expensive gifts to get this temple project on the road. And all that are involved with the worship are localized near the worship center, and the rest of Israel goes to the outlying cities, which would be their homes. Worship costs. When the Jew worshiped, he was to give the firstborn of the flock, the first yield of his crop, the first set of, the first group of grapes, the first group of his produce, whatever it was, it was the first. There were free will offerings that he was also instructed. There were guilt offerings as well. But put yourself in an agrarian community where you're, you have a vineyard, you're growing, and now the fruit's finally coming, you gotta give that first tenth to the Lord? That's a risky proposition. It was a statement of faith and an act of worship. I'm going to trust God to give him the first, knowing that he'll take care of the 90% to come. The firstborn son, you were to dedicate him to the Lord, especially the Levites. That's not the, I mean, the firstborn child, there's nothing like the firstborn child. I'm talking to some friends, they, a group of them were at the beach for eight days, and they all had children, and um, one couple had a 10-day-old baby there. And I said, a 10-day-old baby? And the woman commented, second child. <laughs> if you don't get that, you don't have children. <laughs> it's true. The firstborn is the firstborn. Nothing like the firstborn. You give it to the Lord. Worship for the Jew was expensive. This idea that it was a tenth, excuse me for not missing words, it's not accurate. A tenth is the beginning. The Jew gave upwards 20% if he was a pious Jew. When he had the free will and the votive and the first fruit offerings, it was a tenth of all that, but they were on top of those givings as well. It was generosity. Worship was expensive for the Jew. Think of all you have as a small flock of sheep, a small herd, and the first male lamb born, you give and set aside for Passover to kill it. Worship was expensive. Now let's be very transparent as Americans. When's the last time worship cost us anything? Interesting, the passage says they gave according to their ability. We know it well from 2 Corinthians. They gave above their ability. The Macedonians were impoverished, and they gave back to the mother church more than they were able. In other words, they sacrificed. What does Jesus say when the woman comes and puts in two coins? Hey, look, guys, she gave more than everybody else. The amount? No, percentage. It's all she had. That's what gets Jesus' attention is generosity. When David acquires the land for the home and what will become the temple complex, he gets it from a man named Ornan in 1 Chronicles 21. And Ornan is going to give it to the king. I mean, wouldn't you? If the king asked for something, it's yours, king. And you've got to love David's response. No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, 
or a burnt offering which costs me nothing. Worship is costly. Israel's going to learn this over and over and over again that God's sovereign and they're not. And we are too. Now, let's put it together. We're in exile. We're locked in sin. They were being disciplined for their sin. So are you and me. In order for us to get out of there, God has to make a provision. He has to set us free from captivity, which he does for the Jew during this period of Babylonian exile. He's going to do for you and me in the personal work of Christ. Then he comes along and we see this giving, impulsive giving to the priesthood. Why? Because in order to have a worship system, you've got to have the temple in place, the priest in place, the sacrifices in place. How are you going to get there? You have to have a lot of resources to rebuild that complex up to a point where you can offer sacrifice. And the leaders lead out doing that. This book is about worship. This book is about you and me being captive in sin, and we can't get out of it. We have a Savior who came and died in our place on our behalf instead of us to get us out of sin. We, we don't have anything to give to him. We're not good enough to give to him. So Jesus will be, what, the firstborn, the monogenes, unique, one of a kind. He'll be the firstborn son. And God will let us kill him. He will die on that cross in our place on our behalf instead of us to make a way. So now the most expensive price ever paid for worship was paid. Why? So you and I can have a relationship. Because apart from him doing all this, we have no way of relating to him. You can never be good enough for God to pay you any attention. But Christ was more than good enough to make a way for you and me. And so through all the list of names and things that bog us down, don't miss the bigger picture of salvation history. The God's history is working out through his word. And even in a list of names that are important to those people, maybe less important to you and me, the redemptive plan of God is unfolding. And that ought to excite us. And if it ought to convict us, it convicts me to say, does my worship cost me anything toward him? He paid the ultimate cost for you and me to worship him. Does it cost me anything? Is it an inconvenience to my schedule? Is it a little bit early on Sunday morning? Is it money I don't really want to spend? I mean, fill in the blank. It's between you and him, not me. When's the last time your worship expressed a true generosity to what he's done for you and me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that you love us perfectly. You love us faithfully. When we are faithless, you are impossibly faithful. That you will give your very firstborn son, a one-of-a-kind, unique son, to make a way for us to worship you. Why in the world do we spend all this energy on that which does not matter? Help us to realign our priorities. That you are the temple complex. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the light. You seek worshipers to worship you in spirit and truth. May we be those kind of men and women. In Christ's name I ask, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.